Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Volume. Darwin. The nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden and the Golden State Warriors just responded in about as resounding a fashion as is possible after of course dropping game one to the Lakers come back and win game two by 30. So Logan, what did you think was the biggest key to this complete reversal in the dubs favor? I thought there were two big keys in this game, and we can start with what you laid out and what I laid out after their vicious uh, loss in the game one. Uh, and that was, we need more Steph Curry pick and roll. We need more reliable offense from the Dubs. And, oh, my God. I mean, the Lakers didn't have an answer for it. It was embarrassing. The Warriors were playing with their food, it felt like, on offense. They put L.A. in rotation every possession, and the biggest thing was, uh, as we noted after game one, Golden State couldn't get anything at the rim because Anthony Davis was camped down there, parked like a car uh, in the paint. I mean, you just couldn't go near it because he was taking it away. Uh, the Lakers were forced to switch more, forced to pull AD out of the paint, and the Lakers didn't have an answer. I mean, every single possession, Curry, little drop off to Draymond. Draymond's going to find the guy. Little dump off to Looney. Looney's going to find the guy. If you don't pull, well, guess what? Steph's open. And. They were just in rotation. Draymond was making great decisions every single time down, and they didn't respect him, too. That is what also confused me is, Carson, out of the short roll, uh, they weren't pressing up on Draymond, and that, to me, is the worst thing you can do. You're giving Draymond... Draymond's not a force to, to score on many possessions, right? So you can afford to drop like that, but you're also giving him all of these passing angles and passing lanes that's something I thought they should have taken away. And so what I think the Lakers need to do moving forward is play more like the Boston Celtics, and it may not work in your favor every time. Just switch it. Just switch everything. Because what they were doing tonight wasn't working. And Anthony Davis, too, when he would get switched onto that shooter and they would commit to shooting, AD would still drop and give them that shot. When you're giving the Warriors jumpers, I mean, they're going to eat on you all day long. 
Uh, and the other thing that I thought Golden State did really well on the other end against L.A. offensively was just be more physical and tough with Anthony Davis. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this is something to state obvious that's really broad in most basketball games, but it's hard to stop teams when you're not getting offense at the other end. It's hard to stop runs because they're able to get out in transition, and the Warriors are great playing fast. That's what they wanted to do in this game. They played out in transition. When the Lakers aren't getting buckets, they can play up-tempo, and even when the Lakers did score, the Warriors were getting out and running. And so I think you need to stop trying to get Anthony Davis to initiate from the elbow and the perimeter, having him handle the rock, Give it to him on the low block if it's Draymond or if it's Looney. I mean, I'm just much more comfortable with Anthony Davis shooting a turnaround or a fade from the low block than having him shoot elbow jumpers all game. It's just not good offense. Feed him there. The Lakers shoot 14% of their shots on the rim, Carson. They got away from what they do really well as an offense, too. You're relying on Reeves, D'Lo, tough shot making. That's not good, reliable offense. The Lakers take just eight shots at the rim in this game. So I thought they did... They countered the two best things we saw from L.A. in Game 1. They took A.D. out by forcing him to go out more from the perimeter, and they played hard and physical and tough on him with Draymond and the boys, and they just took them out of the paint. They played more Steph Curry pick and roll, and if this game doesn't show you how special Steph is a player, you have to play him like this because if you don't step up on him and take him away, he's got touch from all over the court. He's going to burn you alive. So I just thought Golden State corrected the two biggest things from game one. What a great game plan. What great execution as well. And what a great game, too, from Clay Thompson. 30-piece, 11 of 18, 8 of 11 shooting from behind the arc. Masterful shooting. Uh, great correction from Golden State and a great answer from game one. Awesome adjustments all around. And I think the other one that we have to give Steve Kerr credit for is the decision to start Jermichael Green because that makes the pick and roll all that much more unguardable. When... I thought AD was consistently abandoning Draymond as the roller. So you have a total four on three, and now the low man doesn't really have an opportunity to try to play that two on one like you do if it's Draymond and Looney because it's Jamichael Green or it's a shooter in the corner. And so you are basically looking at somebody trying to challenge Draymond at the rim who is not Anthony Davis, and I thought he got great looks all right or... Draymond is one of the best short roll decision makers we've ever seen, and he's going to dissect you there. So I thought, absolutely, if you look at every major advantage that the Lakers had in game one, the Warriors pretty much countered it in this one. You talk about the Steph pick and roll as basically a necessity, just given how effective Jared Vanderbilt was staying attached to Steph away from the ball in game one, limiting his effectiveness and therefore limiting the quality shots that this offense was able to generate overall. I mean, they stayed in game one by like the pure brilliance of their shot making. They were not getting particularly good looks, obviously not at the paint, but not looks from deep of the caliber that they were in this game either. So they countered that and basically got automatic offense all night out of the Steph pick and roll. But I do think the Lakers can be better with their coverages. They can be sharper, first of all. You cannot just hard hedge and leave the roller wide open every time, especially when you have that other shooter out there like they did going small with Jermichael Green. I think AD needs to do a better job of reading Steph's defender and then being in a position where he can potentially contest a pull-up jumper or make an attempt to recover to the role, man. I thought in game one, I mean, Steph basically took mostly pull-up jumpers out of the pick and roll, which 
if he's getting a good look at it, obviously, is as deadly as anything. But these automatic four-on-threes, I think, are super problematic. And you also just need to mix up the coverages. You can't basically just say, hey, Steph, this is what you're going to get every time. It's too easy. And I do think you talk about them switching more. I don't think it should be an automatic switch everything situation, but I do think they probably need to switch AD on to Steph more because he's capable in that matchup. You get a big body in front of him. Like Steph's preference, even against a big, is still going to be to try to get to a quality look from deep. Like we saw that even against the Kings. As dominant as he was getting downhill, we had to see him make that adjustment throughout the series. And AD can affect his ability to kill you from three with his size. And at the very least, you're negating the four on three, right? Whoever was guarding Stafford turns to Draymond. There's nothing that Draymond can do to abuse a matchup there. So you're resetting the offense. Yes, it's an advantage having Steph on AD, but it's an advantage having Steph on anyone. And AD is as capable in that role as any big man. So it's a combination of things. The Warriors absolutely found a formula that works very well here, going small, putting more shooting on the floor, and just running that Steph pick and roll at a much higher volume. I do think, though, the Lakers can do some things to at least give themselves more of a fighting chance there because it was automatic in this game. And then you talk about the AD factor. We said after game one, we went and talked with Jason Timph on Hoops Tonight, and I thought they should probably put Dre on AD. He's going to be a more physically imposing matchup. He's just feistier, and AD can be affected when he really can't move you off your spot at all. Like, he's not a guy who is going to embrace the physical matchup. If he has a smaller player on him, he wants to shoot over that smaller player. And I just thought that Dre was in for the battle and made him much more uncomfortable. And we saw that foreshadowed in the end of game one. Last eight minutes, AD didn't score. Draymond was on him much more in that stretch. And I also felt that this was just sort of destined to be one of those AD games. And there are a lot of these AD games, and this is why I'm not comfortable calling him a top five player on the planet, even though his ceiling game to game is unequivocally that, because he can be the best defensive player alive and he can give you an efficient 35 and 20 offensively. We pretty much just saw it in game one. But the inconsistency in terms of his assertiveness and also in this one, his skilled shot making was off early. He was not making those same shots from 10 to 15 feet, the turnarounds, the floaters that he was in game one. And so that's a problem. There was a possession early in this one where Wiggins got in front of him on an attempted post up, poked the ball out, and it was just a difference in the tenacity. And the Warriors won that battle with AD all night. But I do think they have to find a way to manufacture more quality looks for him and I think a lot of that comes out of pick and roll like get him in pick and roll with D'Lo with Austin Reeves these guys are totally capable shot makers and decision makers and let one of the all-time great lob threats roll hard to the rim and they can't really effectively cover that and he needs to dominate the glass more also he just was not dialed in and un enough aggressive enough in that battle so I think it's a combination of two things putting Dre on him more Obviously, his defensive impact was negated compared to game one because of what the Warriors did offensively. But for him, in terms of his scoring and offensive production, it is definitely in part, at least, a mindset thing. So the Warriors 
addressed how to deal with AD's dominant defense effectively. They addressed how to limit him offensively after he was dominant in game one. But then also just a couple of other factors that went firmly in LA's way in game one then went the Warriors' way in game two because it wasn't just AD who dominated the paint in game one. It was the Lakers' guards consistently getting penetration, getting quality looks down there. D'Lo Reeves and Schroeder in game one combined for 48 points. In game two, they combined for 21 points. It was a complete reversal. And then I do think we have to look again at LeBron asserting himself more in that physicality arena offensively because this was a jump-shooting clinic from him early. 14 points in the first quarter, and basically all of it came off of his jump shot. But it didn't matter as this game went on. I mean, second half, he was a non-factor, and the Lakers got totally pulled away from. But when we did see him go down to the post a couple times, there was one time where he bullied his way to a good look. There was another time where he got good position and then hit a little turnaround. The smaller that the Warriors go, I think the more the Lakers need to try to dominate that physicality matchup. And in game one, they did. In game two, they did not. But the last deciding factor in this is that the Warriors made everything. I mean, they got much better looks, but it was unbelievable shot making. You mentioned Clay, who was due for one of these games after a couple of off nights, out of handoffs, off screens. If he had a sliver, he was going to shoot and he was going to score. The third quarter, the dubs go 8 of 10 from deep. They're 21 of 42 overall in this game. So it's going to be tough to survive a shooting discrepancy like that. And the Lakers did in game one because they were so stellar defensively and they were so dominant physically offensively. But when they don't excel in those arenas, you can't really beat a vintage dubs offensive game like this. No, not at all. And especially, like you said, when you're trying to play the dubs style, they shoot a lot of threes in this game and God bless Roy Hachimura for keeping him in this thing, man. Another great Hachimura game, man. He is nasty um, with his jump shot. And I wasn't particularly mad at LeBron for shying away because I think Jason made a great point on the show when we were on the other night is that LeBron's not a bad jump shooter. It's just night to night. And I thought when his shot is falling, I don't mind LeBron settling for jump shots because it's not settling at that point. He's found his rhythm, he's found his stroke, and he can hone in the rest of the game. So I wasn't mad at him for doing that, but I think you're exactly right, Carson. And these these are drastic, drastic size mismatches that all lean in the Warrior or excuse me, in the Lakers' favor when you have a small dubs lineup out there when you get to the rim. LeBron, on that one possession where he took him on the low block, made an easy fade turnaround. There's nobody on the dub side that can match with his physicality. When AD is locked in and hungry, there's nobody that can match him physically. He's going to be overpowering on the low block. And you just think about the lineups that they run too. All of these big guards, Vandal on the floor. Inherently, when you get shots close to the rim, even if you miss it, it's going to be a uh, an offensive rebound that you can go up after. Then again, I think the Lakers still have that advantage inside. And so I think... The rest of the series are exactly right. When they are going small, you need to abuse that size mismatch and go inside, lean into post-up, lean into post-ups, lean into being physical, lean into drawing fouls, lean into going inside because I think that all weighs in the Lakers' favor. And again, the Warriors, you're playing into their hand. When you're taking long shots, that leads to long rebounds, that leads to easy transition offense. Going inside is just going to stop those runs that the Warriors were just so easily able to click in on. Um, I think you're right. I don't think with the way, <laughs> with the way the Warriors were shooting tonight, man. 
I don't know if there was any way that the Lakers were going to be able to pull it out, but I think there are ways that they can limit them moving forward. Um, it just felt like a classic Dubs game, man, and that's something that you always have to be weary of too, dude, is the Warriors have that formula, and when that formula's clicking, uh, it's going to be hard to stop. But I don't think the Lakers played a good defensive game. Um, and they got away from what they did well. But they did their job, though, man. They stole one of these games on the road, Carson, and that is big moving forward. It wasn't a great defensive game from the Lakers, and I didn't think that they had the intensity that they did in game one. But the step pick and roll was special, and I do want to touch on it a bit more just because I felt like I focused more on the Draymond short roll. But Steph did a phenomenal job, not just of getting the ball to Draymond as a short roller and allowing him to dissect, but dissecting himself when he was facing multiple defenders. And I thought that there were spots in which he got downhill and then found Looney in the dunker spot or created a look for a shooter. Like he was just consistently of the mindset that I am going to facilitate. I am going to create quality looks for my teammates. I mean, I don't even remember when Steph took his 10th shot. It was late into this game, but he had seven assists plenty early and a bunch more hockey assists. So he was phenomenal in this one, and obviously it's not going to be like the ultimate box score game from him, but it's obvious that he completely shaped and propelled this Dubs win. So has your overall feeling on this series changed now? We both picked the Lakers to win, but picked it to be a close, highly competitive series. How are you feeling after two games? I hate it because this, again, feels like a cop-out answer. It's going to be what versions of these superstars that we get. Um, Is Anthony Davis going to show up night to night and give that consistent effort on the glass? Is he going to be impactful on the low block? Is LeBron going to take over at some point in this series and completely control the game? Um, No, it hasn't. I picked Lakers in seven. I think I'm going to stick with that. But the Lakers are going to need to make some major defensive adjustments. And I just think that if the the one advantage that the Lakers had in this series was getting downhill and getting easy shots at the rim. And I just don't know how you completely limit the Steph pick and roll. Every possession, if they come down there and they go with this pick and roll, I just think it's going to create an equal amount of offense on the other end. You know what I mean? Like, I... I'm going to tentatively stick with Lakers in seven, but I, I, it's a toss-up, man. I really think it comes down to the play that we get from these superstars. If LeBron flips that switch mm-hmm. and turns it on, if Anthony Davis is the beast that we expect Anthony Davis to be, or if Steph Curry takes it up a notch and still plays like the best player in this series, because I think he has been uh, through two games. It, I'm sorry, because that feels like a cop-out answer to this question, but I really do feel like it's the play that we get out of these superstars, and it could go either way. I think that you're right to diagnose that as a key. And the reality is that the Warriors solved everything that went wrong in Game 1. They basically corrected every disadvantage that they were at as well as they could, and they started to exploit what they could with the Lakers. And now it's the Lakers' turn to try to counter that, to weaponize their size and physicality advantages as much as they can. And I do think you have to look to LeBron and AD as leading that charge because those are the two bulls, man. Those are the two guys who are supposed to be able to give you 15 a night each in the paint. But they got to do that. They have to attack consistently and... 
again, it was an off night for some of their secondary creators too. Those guys are going to come and go. I do think that they are overall a very capable guard core with Russell and Reeves and Schroeder. But those guys have to be more aggressive getting into that painted area as well. So I don't know that this is enough for me to change my series pick because I thought game one, the Lakers clearly looked better. Obviously, it ended up being very close at the end, but that was thanks to a little bit of a late game collapse, which we know they are prone to. But they dominated that game physically, and so they were up 15 late for a reason. This game, the dubs looked much, much better. But I do think that the Lakers are probably the still more complete team. And I think having stolen one on the road, they should probably win. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the other game that we've seen in these last two days, which was also an absolute blowout. Followed sort of a similar pattern in that it was more competitive first half and then not at all down the stretch. What did you take away from the Celtics just trouncing the Sixers, Logan? I mean, I focus this majorly on a on a, on a Philly perspective. I thought uh, a big difference from Game One that we saw in this was uh, Joel Embiid taking away the paint, and I first want to give him credit for that. Embiid racks up five blocks. The Celtics attempted 36 percent of their shots at the rim in Game One. That was 26 attempts at a near 85 percent clip. They absolutely abused the paint. They were getting downhill at will. In Game 2, the Celtics attempt just 18% of their shots at the rim. That's only 13 attempts, and they only uh, produced at a 62% clip. So I want to first by giving Embiid credit there because I thought he looked good in that mm-hmm. way. But on the Sixers' side of this offensively, the only good offense that we got from Philadelphia was in transition. They had an offensive rating of 143 there, but in the half court, it was abysmal. They have an offensive rating of 77.6. Uh Basically, they were the Milwaukee Bucks in the clutch. Um, <laughs> it was it was a very bad showing from Philly in the half court. And so I just ask a couple questions. I want to get your answer on both of these two, Carson. One, 
How can Embiid be more effective offensively in this series? And what can they do differently to manufacture reliable offense? I think that's what we need to focus on. Embiid, in my opinion, was clearly hampered by that knee injury. He looks uncomfortable. Um, you know, I, I, I thought... I didn't like that one time, him falling down from Grant Williams. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that, Carson. I'm going to hope that it was him just, like, getting off balance a little bit and falling. But credit to him, because he got up and down the court really well, and I was concerned with that. But I don't think he was fully comfortable, and I think he is. I still don't think he's 100%. I think this is, like, 80 to 85% mm-hmm. Embiid. Um, either way, I think with all of these Celtics defenders, I think it's going to be hard for Embiid to be effective offensively. I think it's going to be hard for him to initiate from the low block because of how Boston's playing him. Two Celtic defenders at any time are helping off of their men to be off of Embiid. So they can do this because on the weak side, they don't respect P.J. Tucker. If he takes a three-pointer from the corner, so what? But they're not going to close out hard either because he can attack those closeouts really well, so they can help off that side too. Tucker's also only taken one three in two games, and he passed up a ton of open looks, in my opinion, in this game. Embiid also cannot initiate from the perimeter. His handle is just not good enough to. Um, So if they don't change anything schematically, that's Philly, offensively, I think we need to see a dominant shooting series from Embiid for him to be really effective. I think we need to see a dominant shooting series from the Sixers as a whole to be effective. They shoot 6 of 30 from the perimeter in this game, 4 of 21 when their starters were out there. Harden goes 0 of 6 from deep, 2 of 14 from the field. And when you're missing a lot of threes, it leads to really easy transition offense on the other end of the floor for the Celtics. So what can this core do differently to manufacture offense? I think one Carson, you either lean into the skid and you force the Celtics to double team and beat on the low block and just cross your fingers that he can dissect the defense as a facilitator. Or I think you turn to Maxi as a primary initiator when Harden is struggling. I know Maxi is also prone to having his bad lulls offensively, but he's harder to guard. I think he's more effective at getting downhill. And I think you have to run more pick and roll with both of these guys. Um, they ran the fourth least pick and roll in all of basketball in the regular season. Among players with five plus pick and roll possessions per game, Tyrese Maxey was the 10th most efficient pick and roll scorer in all of the NBA. That's 83rd percentile at just over a point per possession. And the biggest thing to me too is because if you're not using Embiid as a creator in the pick and roll, as the roll man, as the screener, there's two extra bodies clogging the lane because he's camped down there. So, I think there are alternatives that the Sixers can explore for more reliable offense. I think that's leaning into Maxi Moore as the guy, as the perimeter creator, and that's using more pick and roll. That's with Tobias Harris and Joel Embiid. I think you're opening up looks if if you're using both of those guys as role men. Because this is with Joel Embiid, who is clearly hampered and not playing at an MVP level, which means all the other guys have to step up and you have to lean off of him. That's with Harden's inconsistency and lack of ability to create reliable offense. And that's with the Celtics having an overwhelming totality of creators and good switchable defenders. So, I mean, my take here is with Embiid not at 100% once again in these playoffs, I don't really know how the Sixers pull this out. Because I think you can manufacture better offense. I think you can take the pain away on defense. But I don't see a distinct advantage that they have at all. And I think for Philly to win this series, they are going to have to shoot the absolute lights out. And I just don't see that happening. I think they need great Embiid. And I think it's a lot to ask of him right now to be great. Because I agree. I didn't think that he looked 100% in this one. But regardless, 
I think he has to be more of a presence because he didn't reshape this defense enough. He did not demand the level of attention that Joel Embiid is supposed to demand, even if he's not dominating as a scorer. He had 43 touches in this entire game. His regular season average is 71. And as you know, if you're watching, he had two points in the second half. So I think there's a few things. First of all, Absolutely agree. They need to run more pick and roll. And I think that that is a key reason that Embiid was his most effective self ever this year. Sure, he grew. He also had the most capable duo of pick and roll ball handlers ever. And it's a really, really difficult action to guard because Embiid can kill you with that free throw line jumper all day. He can attack, get into the paint, draw a foul. And I think it's also essential to create more space for James Harden because although Game one was the switch-a-thon, hey, Jimmy, you're going to get whatever you want against a big, right, step-backs galore. This game, we saw Marcus Smart fighting more to stay in that matchup, and I thought that that made Harden less comfortable, and he struggled a lot more overall. Had lots of trouble finishing inside, too, and he was able to draw some foul calls, but he also got stripped a few times where he's not really putting up a legitimate shot attempt. He's basically foul-baiting, and he doesn't get the call. So... I think they need to create more space for Harden. I think they need to create more space for Embiid. I also think Embiid does need to be more aggressive in punishing one-on-one matchups because we certainly were not seeing the kind of defensive attention devoted to him that we did in that Brooklyn series, and that was obviously the extreme. But, like, Horford did fine on him. We know that Horford is historically a very respectable matchup, but this is supposed to be a different Joel Embiid. This is the Joel Embiid that cooked them for 50-plus the last time that they met in the regular season. And I think he can still win that matchup more often than not. He had a good move where he ripped through into a nice dunk against Horford. I mean, he's going to be comfortable taking his jumpers basically whenever. And honestly, he probably should do that more too. But he just can't be content to say, I'm just going to take my face-up jumpers, and that's going to be my impact on this game because I thought he did get a good look off the roll coming downhill. He was able to attack Horford one-on-one in that one spot and get a good look at the rim. But this was a slog, and the problem is that outside of these two, who both had very bad games, it's a stagnant offense. It's a bunch of guys standing around waiting for things to be created for them or waiting to get the ball so they can attack a mismatch, but nobody is helping these guys out when they're trying to create for themselves. And P.J. Tucker, I don't know how you can play him. Like, he's not shooting the ball, Logan. There were multiple instances in this game where a good look is created for him either by Embiid or by Harden, and he literally just gives the ball right back, completely reset the offense. Like, P.J., There's one thing you're out there to do offensively, and it's shoot corner threes. It's the only thing you've done for four years. So do it. Be confident in it, for God's sakes. Because if he's not, then you are playing four on five. And they can't survive that against a Boston team that is so dynamic in terms of the variety of creators that it has. So when both Harden and Embiid are off, I mean, you don't have a prayer. And that was the case in this game. And unless Embiid gets a whole lot better then I don't think Philly has much of a chance at all. I do agree with you on the defensive point. Embiid was amazing on the interior in this first half. All five of his blocks came then. But I thought that on the perimeter, 
Philly was not good enough in terms of containing dribble penetration, in terms of closing out onto shooters. I thought that Marcus Smart just hunted DeAnthony Melton and James Harden a couple times with his physicality. And I just think that drive and kick game is something that Embiid isn't able to take away. And Horford is really keeping Embiid honest with his willingness to shoot. And he was one of eight from deep in this game, but he took eight threes. Most of them are pretty good looks. So Boston is going to do everything they can to dominate offensively without having to go right at Embiid as scorers because he's going to be there and help. He's not going to be able to recover to the perimeter super effectively, and Philly's perimeter defense overall was not good in this game. So all those things come together and you get a pounding like this. Boston is better. They were better, I thought, even with healthy Embiid. That was my prediction at the least. But if Embiid is not going to be MVP caliber, we know that James Harden isn't dropping 45 every night. Like, we know that he's erratic as a scorer. He struggles to get downhill at this stage in his career. And uh, they've got a long, long uphill battle. Yeah, uh, it was a little much Marcus Smart offense for me, Carson, I'm going to be honest. Uh, But you're exactly right. I mean, they use their physical advantages, too. And I want to give a big Mm -hmm. credit, too. One, I want to say I thought it was a complete lack of effort, classic James Harden game where he's not putting his hand up, not closing out. Uh, I think you make a great point with the advantage, too, that they have with floor spacing. All of those Al Horford threes were open. And if Al Horford can make three or four of those in a game, that's a big swing in one that you're just getting open points, open looks. But two, again, Embiid has to slide out. I do want to give a massive shout-out to Jalen Brown, though. I thought he did such a phenomenal job at taking whoever they stuck on him and he was saying, I'm going to blow by you. I'm getting to the rack. Ooh, if I could change one thing about this game, it's that he puts that poster down on Joel Embiid. Man. That was <laughs> yeah. nasty. That fired me up, dude. You don't see much uh, like that. You have that one early in the game where he blows by, and it's like a bank lay-in where he lets it go before he gets mm-hmm. to the top. That second one, dude, I thought we were getting an all-time poster. I thought that was going to go down. But in a game where they didn't really need Jason Tatum, Malcolm Brogdon sprays a bunch of threes in the second and third quarter, and then Jalen Brown is just just good, man. I, I like seeing Boston. Boston, again, has that tendency to disappear during games and play like almost brain-dead basketball, it feels like. This one didn't feel like that. They were cognizant. They were reading the defense the entire time, and they were taking advantage of their mismatches, and they were doing what they do best, especially Jalen Brown getting downhill, getting to the rack, and doing their thing. Um, yeah, I thought it was a combination of things. I thought it was one. I, I think this is the worst we're going to see out of Philly all series long and hopefully all playoffs long. This was bad Philly, and this was really good Boston on the other end. But, yeah, I just want to give a big shout-out to Jalen Brown because finally we're getting good, consistent offense, and he needs to do that. So does Jason Tatum as well. Get downhill, play smart Boston basketball. What a testament to the Boston Celtics that they can win a game by 34 when Jason Tatum goes one for seven, man. And again, it's this guard core, dude. You get 53 points from Smart, White, and Brogdon combined. It's the most talented team in the league. They have the deepest core of creators. And if basketball were played on paper, I think that they would win the title. Certainly be a pretty significant favorite. But the team that perhaps was in that conversation before all of this, Logan, the betting title favorite, the team that we both picked, the Milwaukee Bucks, made a big move today, fired head coach Mike Budenholzer. What's your reaction to this? 
I also like the consensus I've seen. Uh, was not that surprised at, at this move. Um, it is kind of unprecedented in terms of what the Milwaukee Bucks did this season in a multitude of ways. One, uh, they're the third team in NBA history to finish with the league's best record and win less than two playoff games. And no coach with the best record in the league has been fired uh, since 2010. That was Mike Brown with Cleveland. So pretty strange that we see this happen, but this is Coach Bud's shtick, man. Uh, not making schematic adjustments in games, having poor rotations, and it has consistently led uh, to playoff disappointment. Coached the 60-win Hawks in 2015 that were swept by LeBron. He was eliminated by the Raptors in six in the Eastern Conference Finals in 2019. Eliminated by the Heat in five in the second round of 2020, and again in this series. And so in this series, it's specifically disappointing when you have one mammoth lead in multiple games in the series that you just absolutely choke away. When you have the much more dramatically talented roster, and when you have arguably the best player on the planet, I think the thing that makes this the worst of all, Carson, though, is that you have the game tape, Coach Bud. You have the tape that suggests the adjustments that you should make. The key to the Bucks beating the Heat in the playoffs in 2021 was what, Carson? It was putting Giannis one of the best defenders on planet Earth on Jimmy Butler straight up. And in this series, they decide to put Drew Holiday on Jimmy and they put Giannis on Kevin Love and Biggs and let him play Rover a little more. Butler went 15-8-7 on 39% true shooting in that series. They never even explored that in this series. They let Holiday get worn down one, get tired out by Jimmy just being physical, playing hard, and let him repeatedly get cooked in this series. So... The reality of this is he, once again, he gets outcoached by Eric Spolster in this series. He's repeatedly underachieved in big playoff spots with really good rosters. And so I can understand Milwaukee being frustrated with him and expecting more out of a roster this talented. So I do feel bad for Coach Bud in the sense that he's going through a lot in his personal life in this series. Maybe he's not 100% mm-hmm. invested in basketball, but this is the Coach Bud's story this is his thing and um i'm i'm not surprised and i understand again the milwaukee organization being frustrated and expecting more i thought you thought (laughs) this is the most talented basketball roster maybe save boston and so for you guys to win one playoff game is just a complete and utter letdown um i think they made the right call by by letting coach bud go i mean the reality is, is with the nba being so talented nowadays you have to have a smart coach that is ready to make adjustments on the fly because that's how basketball games in the playoffs are won yeah. by making adjustments. And I know this is a philosophy pushed down from Popovich where you don't make changes. You stick to your identity, to your thing. But everybody in the NBA is so talented nowadays, and you have to make adjustments. And Coach Bud has just been reluctant to do so throughout his entire NBA tenure. I'm with you. I think that this was the right decision. And, of course, all the sympathy in the world to Coach Bud for just losing his brother. I mean, incredibly difficult circumstances. But the shortcomings are real, and this was like an all-time embarrassment. Even with Giannis only playing two and a half games, we still saw how much better Milwaukee was in games four and five. And we saw them go up convincingly, and then we saw them lose those leads in catastrophic fashion. You mentioned the lack of an adjustment in terms of putting Giannis on Jimmy. I think also the fact that they continue to run drop as they always do against a Miami team 
that was beating you almost exclusively with its shooting. I mean, Jimmy was putting on a pull-up jump shooting clinic largely from the mid-range, getting good looks against drop. But everybody else on the Miami Heat was getting good looks from three. Also, Giannis in his rover role, I thought, conceded some good looks from three over helping. So it was just like across the board, this team is beating you in one way and you're playing right into that hand. And I also thought, as we talked about right after this game, the clutch offensive approach was incredibly ill-devised. Like to just keep going Giannis post-up. Oh, Bam's stifling him? Well, what if we go another Giannis post-up? Oh, he drew a foul. Well, unfortunately, he missed both free throws. Like, in those situations, when it comes to crunch time, go to your big-time shot maker. Go to the Middleton Giannis pick and roll where you can still weaponize Giannis's athleticism, but you have a more capable shot maker alongside him facilitating things. And you mentioned half-court Philly looking like <laughs> Clutch Milwaukee, 77 offensive rating in those last two games in the clutch. And then you have, of course, the complete lack of situational awareness with not calling that timeout you have just the hideous lack of offensive direction that persists into that overtime period where your last possession of the season you don't get a shot off like someone has to be held accountable for two fourth quarter collapses against an eight seed and this isn't a scapegoat because bud did a lot of things wrong clearly Giannis also failed offensively oh I shouldn't use that word I guess that's gonna offend him but like he was really bad down the stretch in game five we know that he's also the guy who's going to be in the conversation for the best player in the world he is not going to be the one who is held most accountable and I don't think he's the one who is necessarily most in the wrong for this because it was an overall execution game plan disaster for Milwaukee and I think that that falls largely on coach Bud but like he does deserve credit man as an overall coach he has accomplished a great deal. Five straight years, Milwaukee has been a top three seed. They have been the most consistent regular season team in the NBA. This man turned Brooke Lopez into a defensive player of the year candidate with the drop coverage and pioneered consistently great regular season defenses. But that inability to adjust repeatedly did this team in. And four out of five times, that they've been to the playoffs in the peak Giannis era. They have underachieved. They have been beaten by less talented teams with the exception of Boston last year. I mean, that, I don't think they should have won that series without Middleton. But Heat V1 was an embarrassment. Heat V2 was an embarrassment. With a lot of the same things letting them down. Lack of offensive identity outside of brute Giannis against a team that was building the wall on him. Let them down. And conceding a lot of good looks from three to what was a great three-point shooting team, that 2020 Miami squad. And then against Toronto, he got completely out-schemed, I thought, by Nick Nurse. And that's the other reason that this makes sense is Nick Nurse is available. And with all of the valuable things that Bud has introduced already in place, why would you not go out and say, let's get one of the great in-game adjusters, mismatch attackers that Nick Nurse is? So you're right, I mean, this is largely unprecedented historically. Like, you can really think off the top of your head about the guys who won a championship and then were fired with that core still in place. We just saw it with Frank Vogel, actually, but that was after two disastrous seasons, like top-to-bottom disastrous seasons. But before that, you got to go back to Larry Brown after the 2005 seasons with the Pistons, who 
didn't get fired because of basketball. He was a difficult guy, and the organization had enough. And then before that, I think you go back to Paul Westhead in 1982, who, guess what? Magic was fed up with. And you're not going to choose Paul Westhead over Magic Johnson. And then you walk into Pat Riley and that goes pretty well. So those are guys who caused problems or in the case of Frank Vogel had just a disastrous tenure after that championship, but is not there. So it is going against some precedents, but I think the building frustration with these same issues and just the humiliation of this one series, it makes sense. And I do think they can move forward and improve with a fresh perspective, with a guy who is more capable of winning those chess matches and out-coaching the other guy in those big-time playoff environments. So, Coach Bud's going to find a job, and he's probably going to make some team better. Like, he obviously can institute a lot of valuable things that help you play very good regular season basketball. And he got this team a title. So, it was a title in which they... Definitely had the door flung wide open for them with the Harden and Kyrie injuries, and then it was the Hawks in the conference finals, and I think they were a more talented, better team than the Suns, but they won the title, and that is something that only so many coaches throughout NBA history can say. All right, that's going to do it for us here today, guys. Only a couple games to talk about, of course, but we will be back in a few to talk about a more packed weekend of basketball, so if you enjoyed, then... Appreciate you guys listening. You can find the pod on all audio platforms and you can watch us on the volume YouTube channel. Of course, extremely excited and proud to be part of the volume as of a little over a week ago now. So very, very happy to be here. You guys can follow us across social media, TikTok at nerd sesh, Instagram, same handle, Twitter at nerd underscore sesh. And as always, appreciate you guys. I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was nerd sesh. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.